Um, thanks, Stephen, for asking me to uh, speak, and thanks to all of you for listening. Um, best thing about going first is uh, the guy before me. You know, I can't be any worse than him. But I hope uh, all of you have had coffee and uh, will find a way to learn a little bit about uh, Ethiopia, which is one of my passions, one of my coffee passions and personal passions. Next slide. Or first slide. Next slide. Next slide, please. Working out the kinks. Um, so like Stephen said, uh, my name is Corey Bush, and I'm the origin supply chain manager for Falcon Coffee's African origins. Um, so we're green coffee traders and importers, uh, primarily focused on specialty and sustainable coffees. Um, Sustainability for us, I mean, it, I think it's a word that's, that's loaded that uh, people have all sorts of different um, views on. But for us, it can take the form of certified coffees. It can take uh, the form of involvement with projects such as the Gates Foundation uh, funded TechnoServe project in Ethiopia. Or more importantly for us as Falcon, um, through direct involvement in the supply chains. So direct involvement, what can that be? That can be investing in new cooperatives, it can be uh, price risk management services uh, to, to farmers and producers to help sort of equalize the, the balance of power in the, uh, the commodity complex. Uh, joint ventures are a big one for us. Um, you know, one of the ways that we compete is by setting up joint ventures with uh, frequently family-owned uh, exporters with local knowledge, local language. Um, and it, it ends up being a really powerful alternative to the uh, the big multinationals uh, who are sort of in the business as usual um, uh, way of doing things. Me personally, I resided in East Africa for the last five and a half years um, prior to moving up to the UK. Uh, well, actually live on the Isle of Man, so almost the UK. Um, but find myself spending about half the time, uh, about six months a year, uh, traveling within East Africa at Origin, working on our supply chains. Next slide. So you'll see here on uh, this massive screen, um, the word coffee comes from kaffa. Um, I don't know how many people this is, I'll, I'll repeat the legend uh, very, very briefly, um, but the history of coffee began in Ethiopia with a goat herd called Kaldi, who the short version of the legend is that he, uh, he was a goat herder and he noticed one day that his flocks were nibbling on the bright red berries of a certain very specific tree. And when they did, they became more energetic. He chewed on the fruit himself, um, and his exhilaration prompted him to bring these berries to an Islamic monk nearby in a monastery. He disapproved of their use, threw them in the fire, from which an enticing aroma billowed. The roasted beans were quickly raked from the embers, ground up, and dissolved in hot water, yielding the world's first cup of coffee. So this is around the ninth century AD. It's a legend, you know, so who, who knows in the end? But, you know, the genetics of coffee really do point to uh, Ethiopia as being the source of coffee arabica, which now accounts for, depending on the year, depending on who you talk to, sort of 60 to 75% of the uh, coffee produced globally. Next slide. So I want to go into sort of a very brief history of, of coffee within Ethiopia and, and how it, you know, historically got to market and then how, you know, coming into how it gets to market today. Um, skipping forward from the ninth century to 1920, um, there were basically just two main grades of coffee. Harari, which, uh, you know, many people think that's actually where coffee came from originally. It's this... Uh, 
you know, crazy, really Star Trek-like um, uh, dry, arid region, um, but that grows this fantastic naturally processed coffee. And then there's Abyssinian. Um, Abyssinia obviously uh, being Ethiopia. So we basically had two kinds, Harari and then generic. Um, back in the 20s, I guess there were about 6,000 tons of, uh, of coffee exported. So compared to today, there are about, I'd say, 400 to 450,000 tons produced, about 200 to 220,000 that are exported. Um, the government established a department in the Ministry of Trade to regulate the coffee uh, sort of marketing and export in 1956. Then a year later, set up the National Coffee Board to improve marketing, agriculture, and extension. So, you know, this is, um, we think of Ethiopia as sort of being the motherland of coffee, but it's actually relatively recently that they've, um, you know, commercialized and really taken it from, um, you know, from a, a cultural foundation um, to something that was marketed to the outside world. Um, the, this, it was all trust-based at that point, so uh, over time, monopolistic behavior developed, um, there were distortions in the market, and in 1971, an auction system was, uh, was instituted, so whereby uh, suppliers would uh, send samples to Addis Ababa, people would cup the coffee, inspect the green, um, and then an open outcry auction would, uh, would take place. Uh, and you'll see these are actually original photographs of, uh, of uh, I guess, the opening day of the auction in 1971. Next slide. 1973, the Emperor Haile Selassie, um, many of you have probably heard of him in, in reggae songs, um, but he actually was the, uh, the head of Ethiopia for about 40 years, the Emperor. He was overthrown by a socialist military revolution, um, you know, largely prompted by a massive famine where people sort of thought that, uh, you know, he wasn't doing enough to respond. And, you know, there were, I think, you know, 50,000, 100,000 deaths. But it was, it was a big, uh, you know, caused a big backlash against, uh, against the emperor. So a socialist military uh, regime came in, and as you can imagine, there was a substantial hostility to private enterprise at that point. Um, causing, you know, the government then restricted the amount of coffee export license, nationalized a lot of uh, the farms, and uh, by 1989, there were actually only 13 coffee exporters um, still operating. Uh, exporters were given quotas, so if the country produced 10,000 tons, let's say, exporter number one would be, would be given 200 tons, exporter two, 400 tons, etc. with then the remainder being exported and uh, marketed by the government directly. Uh, the current government came into power uh, in 1991, and the sector was liberalized, uh, getting us to about 200 ac active exporters uh, by 2003. I think today we're at probably uh, 400 plus anyway, so it's a, it's a pretty, um, pretty wild market um, out there. Then the auction, which had, been, uh, which had endured throughout 37 years, um, good and bad times, came to an end in 2008 with the institution of the uh, Ethiopian Commodity Exchange, which uh, we'll talk a little bit more about now. It completely revolutionized, really, the way that coffee was marketed and traded um, within the country. Next slide. So we're at now December 2013. This uh, I took this photo, I think, in, in the south in, uh, in Sadama. Um, the commodity exchange really changed the way that everybody, um, or nearly everybody, purchased their coffee. Before, you would get your samples, 
figure out what you like, build your relationships over many years, um, and then uh, buy that coffee from, from the people that you know. Um, what the ECX did was basically say, okay, for everybody except for the unions and private farms, um, you have to sell your coffee through this commodity exchange where it gets graded, anonymized, and then you're just, as a buyer, buying the, the generic good. So you could, you know, it's a coffee that scores an 84 from Jurga Chefe, for example. Um, that's a simplified version. It's actually quite complex, but um, really sort of uh, changed everything about the system. Um, it's a pretty, you know, I think a lot of people, there's been a lot of noise over the years about how it sort of destroyed the specialty, uh, you know, market and for, for Ethiopian coffee. It's, you know, it changed things, but it's actually a really remarkable platform in the sense that, you know, you'll see here, this is a, an electronic sign. It's, uh, I think it's actually a Sesame contract, but um, farmers, you know, all across the country can see in real time what the prices for a given grade is, um, a specific grade. It's, it's really informational to producers. You know, they can figure out what a coffee is worth on a given day, whether to sell, whether not to sell. And it's just this really impressive platform. Um, not to say that it's, it's perfect. There are certainly some problems. Uh, next slide. Um, you know, like I was saying, it really uh, did, uh, I think, um, inhibit a lot of the relationship building and sort of put all of those, the relationships and flow of coffee to a stop um, immediately, overnight. Um, so, you know, the specialty trade definitely had a bit of a, sort of had a hysterical breakdown over the, um, the uh, relationships that I guess were jeopardized. But, you know, the rhetoric uh, didn't end up being helpful in, in sort of additive to solving the problem. You know, I think both sides would say, we have the best interests of farmers at heart. Why are you wrong? You know, it, it was really um, not a useful conversation. I think it's, since we're talking about history, it's really important, I think, to mention that, uh, you know, Ethiopia is the only country in Africa that's actually uh, defeated a European colonial power, the, the Italians, sorry. Um, and it's retained its sovereignty as an independent nation. I mean, I think that's a really powerful thing um, to, to think about and consider when, when, you know, even in the modern day, this, this happened, you know, years and years ago. But uh, there, there's this sense of self-pride in, in, in the nation that, um, uh, you know, doesn't matter the topic. People are going to say, you know, who are you to dictate to me what we're going to do? And I think that holds true in coffee. Next slide. So to talk about specialty coffee in Ethiopia and the rest of Africa, I think this is a, uh, you know, you need to understand smallholders. Um, and I think this is a super powerful statistic that 50% uh, of the world's coffee is grown by 30 million farmers across 45 countries. And I'd say in Ethiopia, um, it's that, that percentage within Ethiopia is probably even greater. So, um, you know, the, the, it, it always blows me away when I'm out there um, looking at coffee and, and visiting farmers because you consider this this agricultural good with universal recognition, global recognition, is primarily produced by very small farmers, often impoverished in conditions where, you know, they, they'd be they're unimaginable to many of us. Um, you know, poor education, lack of access to healthcare and educate well and higher education, poor roads, bad infrastructure, corruption, and you know, the, list, the list goes on and on. Um, 
In fact, I mean, the, these stats are powerful as well. 21 of the world's 30 poorest countries are coffee producing, and 25 of the 40 uh, highly indebted produce, or poor countries are coffee producers. But these people aren't poor because of coffee. They're poor people farming coffee. So I think there's a very important distinction uh, you know, to make here when we're thinking about smallholder farmers in production. It's really an opportunity. Um, it's, it's, it's not a problem. And I think specialty coffee um, is a, you know, a particularly unique uh, opportunity in Ethiopia to improve the livelihoods and farm income for millions of people above and beyond um, what other farmers might have uh, the opportunity to do. I've actually uh, gotten a couple slides behind. If we can go like two forward. Just talking and you guys had no clue what I was saying. One more. In big letters and then one more forward. Right. So Ethiopia, so we're talking about opportunities now. Um, there are about 1.2 million coffee farmers in the country, most of whom who have less than a hectare of coffee. So hectare being two acres. You know, you can see the distribution of this chart. And, you know, the left is the, uh, the percentage of, uh, of farmers with big farms. So I guess the, the what are we looking at here? Right, so it's showing a very small number of farmers have land holdings sort of greater than two hectares, and the, the vast, vast majority of, of the other farmers have tiny, tiny farms. And the, uh, the 800,000 farms uh, gets, got, got cut off a bit, but, oh no, there it is. Um, you have two-thirds of the country of, of coffee farmers have farms above 1,500 meters. I mean, that's something that... that uh, Many producing countries could only dream of if you look at Central America and the you know the really good uh, you know good farms and good producers down there. I mean they would they would die to have the altitude and the agroecological um, conditions that Ethiopia does. Next slide. So more opportunity. I mean we all we all think about Ethiopia as having you know these fantastic Yirgacheffe, Sidamo. Uh, limo, these these great washed coffees, but you know only about twenty percent of Ethiopia's coffee is high quality. Um, you know it's there. There's still, you know, who's heard of Lekempt and Benchmaji and you know these these other areas in the country that are just producing low grade naturals. I mean there, there's tremendous opportunity to to increase the quality through better um, processing. And then for household income, the other side of the, the money equation is, uh, is always yield, you know, how much coffee you're producing. Uh, you go to farms in Ethiopia, the, the trees can be 30 years, 40 years old, you know, just be sort of the, the um, coffee equivalent of the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. You know, I mean, just having a couple small berries and, and spindly branches, you know, there's absolutely tremendous potential for yield uh, improvement within Ethiopia. Next slide. Ethiopia has a tremendous genetic advantage, too, in coffee. There are over 6,000 unique uh, accessions of coffee arabica. You know, th this number dwarfs the, uh, the genetic sort of foundation of any other country. Um, this photo here is actually at the uh, Jima Area Research Lab, and it's a 
coffee wilt trial where they're just uh, doing really interesting trials in, in disease resistance. Um, they're also doing a lot, uh, the research center, on location-specific targeting of varieties to improve cup quality. So that's saying, okay, here are the, the, you know, we have a specific variety of tree in Yurgachefe. What happens if we put that in, in Sidama? You know, will we get a better cup quality? Is it, you know, will the trees remain, you know, bearing substantial amounts of, of coffee and fruit? So, I, tremendous um, advantage uh, in Ethiopia's um, corner. You know, unfortunately, the center, um, Jimmy Ari Research Center, is far under-resourced. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've started working on and would like to work on more is making sure that they get the resources. You know, this the the coffee patrimony of Ethiopia is just um, there, there's so much more work to be done um, internally to to sort of understand what it's all about. Next slide. So there are a couple. Um, you know, I've talked a lot about. Um, the, the marketing systems over the years. I mean, I think there are several things that can be done to, um, in the very near term, to help us all in the specialty industry uh, get better coffee um, and get more of it. I think that supporting the cooperative unions, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the the unions are one of the one of two sources of traceable coffee. So you can um, establish the relationships. You can work with uh, the washing station, the producers, um, to improve the quality. Um, but you know, they're they're uh, I, I'd say not meeting market demands. I think they're they're overwhelmed by the demand for Ethiopian coffee. Um, you know, I think that supporting them in one way or another, whether it's um, you know through through donor support or you know could be any number of different ways, I think is pretty critical. Uh, the ECX in the past has experimented in with a second window where producers can sell their coffee. Uh, through the ECX, but uh, with traceability, you know, these it, it didn't go well for for a number of reasons in the past. But um, designing a proper second window, sort of, in conjunction with the buyers, I mean, that this isn't something that was done um, previously. You know, there there wasn't sort of um, client input taken into account. I think that could be a pretty interesting, a pretty interesting way to bring additional new coffees to market as well. Um, and then this is getting a bit technical geeky, but you know some people have uh, you know thought of making the ECX optional, um, so you don't have to deliver your coffee into this commodity system um, unless you want to. You know maybe you're you're producing a pretty average coffee and sort of just you're happy to sell your bulk um, produce in. You know make it optional, but then you know make it mandatory for contract clearing. This is the geeky bit. Um, you know, there's there have been a lot of abuses in the past around um, prompt payment, around uh, um, you know the auction system of of people buying coffee but then not paying. It's you know the the in tax avoidance I think was a big big problem as well. You know, I think making it mandatory for contract clearing could be an interesting option too, and still retain the foundation of the system. Uh, next slide. So, for those, well, I think everyone can read the headline because it's about uh, it's about forty feet wide. But just want to close with uh, a headline. This is actually from the Onion, which is a satirical newspaper, um, otherwise known as America's favorite news source, and it reads: Six-day visit to rural African village completely changes women's Facebook profile picture. Um, you know, it's an absurd headline and only sort of marginally relevant to to my point here. I just think it's funny. 
Um, but I think it points to our tendency when we're um, dealing with unfamiliarity to sort of highlight and broadcast things that really don't matter. I mean, it's easy for us in the industry to hide the truth behind the supply chain in pretty pictures and flowery language. You know, I'd like to encourage everybody in this room, whether you're a roaster, barista, um, coffee drinker, really anybody, um, know what you buy and, you know, always strive for more. There's always more opportunity. Um, without us trying on this side of the equation, I think we're going to fail the first bit of the supply chain, the producers in Ethiopia, um, which in the long term is, is bad for all of us. Next slide. So our company's founder used to add, uh, end many of his presentations with the picture of a man on a horse, but uh, in honor of the unofficial national animal of Ethiopia, I'm going to close with a donkey. Thank you very much. It's a long way up here, isn't it? Yeah. And it's so big. Um, thank you very much, Corey. That's, it's, it's super interesting whenever I see a presentation on Africa. Um, as it's somewhere, as a coffee buyer, it's, it's a difficult place to do things. Um, kind of going back to what you were talking about in the presentation, do you feel that Ethiopian coffee, we all know, can be amazing. Can be more amazing than most other producing countries. Um, do you, sometimes I feel it's, it's, it's in spite of what they might do, more than what they could kind of capture. Do you see developments in the future to kind of really dive into the specialty thing? Or is it really, as I was told at the ECX, well, you're just so small it doesn't matter to us? Good question. Um Frankly, I do. I'm optimistic. I'm seeing um, increased focus from both um, private exporters, uh, the unions, um, even producers on producing higher value coffee. I think that the ECX uh, had a lot of kinks and has a lot of kinks that are still working out. And, you know, I think that um, few people looking for very high end, high value coffee could argue that it was a big step in the right direction. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think, I think speaking with, um, you know, I spent the last three months there and you know, everybody's focusing on, you know, how do I maximize the, the amount of money that I'm receiving for, for my coffee? And people get it now that, that uh, you know, quality is the way forward. You know, you still have your volume-focused guys, but, you know, I am, I'm, I'm optimistic, yeah. I think the ECX is a, it's a really interesting body, and, and you don't truly understand. I read lots about it until I went and actually saw and spoke to people about it. Most producers in Ethiopia are very much in favor of ECX. From where they used to didn't get paid, they do get paid now. It's all very transparent. Um, payments aren't withheld, which was a big problem. And taxes is another very important part that coffee is so important to Ethiopia. Um, and people were avoiding paying the taxes, which means that a country can never better itself. So I, I, I think the ECX is a really positive thing, and it's great to see a positive presentation on Ethiopia. Um, audience members, this is your chance to participate. Has anybody got any questions that they'd like to ask Corey? And uh, I'm looking at blank faces. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I really hope you should have made a plant, shouldn't I, somewhere in there? <laughs> right, I'm coming up with the microphone, so give me a second. Run, run. I'm good at running. It's like a marathon all over again. I'm out of breath just thinking about your running. Yeah. I'm out of breath thinking about me running. <laughs> Look at that. I'm here. Cool. Um, I was just wondering, you were saying about research and uh, was it the Limu region? 
Yes, yes. Uh, that you had the pictures from. Um, but obviously, like in so much of coffee, more research seems to be a good way forward. Um, I was just wondering, at the moment, was that something that was done um, on a kind of governmental scale in Ethiopia? Or was there more room to for private investors to kind of throw their money at that to enable them to have the resources you were talking about? Yeah, good question. Um, research is, is centralized um, in sort of a quasi-public, para-governmental, um, uh, you know, center. The Jim Area Research Center, they're based in the West, but um, they actually have a responsibility for, um, put this up a bit so I'm not hunched over. Um, but they do have a responsibility for research uh, all across the country. Um, I don't think there really is a role for private research. Um, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity around, um, you know, outside involvement because Ethiopia does have such a tremendous, um, you know, advantage in terms of uh, tree genetics. Um, and, you know, there have been some really high profile, you know, cases, whether you're looking at geisha or something like that, where uh, a um, variety uh, native to Ethiopia was smuggled out of the country. Um, so there's tremendous sensitivity. I mean, they want all the research to happen um, in the country, and rightfully so. I mean, I think the um, that, uh, you know, the, the super powerful private research entities, I mean, they, I think they have their own corporate interests at heart. It's probably not the best interest of Ethiopia. I mean, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but I think that uh, it'd be a tough mountain to climb to uh, have private involvement. And any other questions? Fantastic. You see, I came up here and then people wanted to ask questions. I like it. Thank you. Yeah, um, I just wanted to um, confirm again, you said about the uh, ECX, uh, how is it that they are funded? Is it they take a, um, a percentage from those that are selling the beans in? Is it a government funded thing? or And would a change in the manner in which they are funded prompt um, more stimulus on their part for um, more specific specialities uh, grown by the smaller farmers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, in its early days, the ECX was actually funded by um, by donor money, by USAID specifically, um, to the tune of, gosh, I don't even know, tens of millions of dollars. Um, now it's funded by a, uh, a percentage tax on the volume of each contract traded. Um, so, in theory, there should be the proper incentive um, for you know maximization of of the uh, the price received um, for the coffee. In reality, I think the incentives just diluted a bit. Yeah, you know, they, they're looking at finding additional um, revenue streams, but um, I just don't. I, I think the ECX is a uh, uniquely Ethiopian institution. I think they want to keep it that way, and I think they want to. Uh, find a way to fund it internally. Does that answer your question? Sort of. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember asking lots of questions about ECX when I was, and I still don't understand it completely. It's a very, very complicated system, and but, but, but very interesting. Um, just before we wrap up on, on this, that we're talking about research. Uh, Q Gardens have done a, a, a lot of research. Aaron Davis. Need to help on that one, but SCAA have released a, a video from their symposium, and I wholeheartedly recommend if you want to learn more about Ethiopian varietals, it's a super interesting video and uh, one of the best that's out there on the internet at the moment. But this will be up there to rival it, so please, big round of applause for Corey Bush from Vulcan Trading. Thank you.